Welcome to the Disruptor Series Podcast, Adweek's Agency Podcast of the Year. The following was recorded live at TBWA Shy Day, New York. Here's your host, Doug Melville, Chief Diversity Officer of TBWA. Beautiful people! Yo, everyone looks good tonight! <laughs> My name is Doug Melville, and I thank you all for coming to TBWA Shia Day New York, TBWA headquarters in the heart of Madison Avenue. We are one of the last ad agencies still on Madison Avenue. So we're here to support, baby. We're here to, and we appreciate you. You may be seeing me uh, pop up in your feed every morning on my LinkedIn daily diversity news. So I, if you do, don't turn off the push notifications every morning at 8.30, you're gonna continue to see me. But today, I'm really excited and appreciate all of your time uh, coming here on a weekday to have a detailed conversation um, with someone who has really been disrupting the DNI space uh, from the beginning of her career. So I encourage everyone here to log on to either Spotify or Apple Podcast. All of our conversations are available through our Disruptor Series podcast. We just passed our 100,000th listener, so that was very positive. Um, and that was a real uh, testament to uh, Rob Schwartz, our CEO, uh, and myself and others here at the agency who put Disruptor Series together uh, five years ago. So we're excited that we are still rolling. Um, today's talk is in partnership with our Circle of Women group, uh, which is created at TBWA Shy Day New York as a mentoring program to help with leadership of our women executives and rising stars to become better leaders and to grow their careers. So that's headed up by our Director of Operations, Sophia Barnett Wilshire. So give her a round of applause. She said, Doug, if you don't call my hyphenated last name out, my husband is coming for you. So um, if you tag any posts tonight, make sure to hashtag Disruptor Series on all your social platforms. Um, we used to put flyers on the chairs, but people just pushed them aside, so we're just going to tell you verbally. Um, and that's all I really have today before we bring out our disruptor for this afternoon. So uh, one thing I want to say about this amazing, special person is that we've actually known one another for 15 years, and I am a diversity officer because of her inspiration, although she did not submit my resume for the job <laughs> when it was open. That's okay, I still landed here anyway. But she's all the way from Roxbury, Massachusetts, the home of New Edition. She was their neighbor. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the one and only Tiffany R. Warren. Yeah, Tiffany. Damn, Tiffany. Hi, everyone. Wow. Yeah, you're bringing athleisure all the way back. I love that. So thank you for coming and joining us. Yeah, you look great tonight. Thank you, thank thank you, you. for Hi, giving everyone. us an hour of your time. Hello. Um, so those are, for those of you in the audience, uh, a few years ago, we actually had our largest disruptor series at Ad Color. We did. Uh, we spoke with uh, Snoop Dogg and his chief creative officer. Yes. And uh, so this is like a full service yes. moment. Yes. Um, so I want to start the conversation really you are the modern matriarch or Sherpa of diversity on Madison Avenue. And really before anybody was talking about diversity as it related to editorial content, or it's a trend, or it's something that I want to do, or it's I want to be a diversity officer, you really for the last 20 years have opened some doors cleanly, I'm sure, and some doors you had to push through a little mm -hmm. extra. Yeah. Um, but before it was topical, you were focused on this area um, so maybe you could walk us through what was the inspirational moment uh, in your life or go back to where it started and how this diversity and inclusion conversation was something uh, hmm. that you thought you would be involved with. Yeah. Is it true you started at three years old? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tell, tell me about when you were three. Not to quote New Edition again, but they, one of my favorite songs is Where It All Started From, so, so I'll take it back. Um, yeah, I was three years old. I was a student in... Um, Head Start. So that's the program that the government saw fit to create to give inner city kids a head start in life um, because obviously there were lines for the more expensive pre-K programs. Um, so I was a student at St. James Head Start in Boston, Massachusetts. And part of the curriculum 
was actually to get a progress report. So obviously, I knew how to draw circles and squares <laughs> and cut paper, but then they had this whole psychological thing that was involved. Um, so I got a progress report on my psyche. And one of the things they noticed was when new kids would come in the class, you know, I was the first one to greet them. And I would be the one that would speak up for them if they couldn't speak up for themselves. It's literally in my progress report, which is yellowed, and I've, I've looked at it millions of times, but they often say that you know what you're meant to do very early, you just have to listen, and your parents have to pay attention. So yeah, at three years old, um, in Head Start, is where I started to see differences amongst people. I started to notice certain people were treated a certain way. Um, even the program itself, you know, we would often be put on display when people would come to visit the Head Start. Um, we were treated a little bit like, you know, we were in a lab. Um, so that really made an impression on me very young. And I, I was just always curious as to why the program was created and, you know, why in some instances I was getting special treatment because I was a, a young woman of color. Wow, so even at that young age, you saw that people were being treated yeah. differently in the classrooms oh, yeah. and, and shown and walked around? Yeah. And that stuck with you all these years? Yes, it's still, I mean, I think we all have a sensitivity to that if you're someone who's different, who's marginalized, but um, yeah, it's, it's really part of uh, this, this DNA that I developed around this intuition in understanding the effects of being you know, on the outside. Um, and so it's followed me with every job, you know, every interaction, every relationship. I just, it was formed at that time, but certainly the program was created and it meant well, and there's so many amazing stories that come out of Head Start, but there was another side to it as well. Mm. And then from that moment, you started working uh, and you created your first ad um, that you created at 13 years old. Yeah. Uh, you were inspired by all the television commercials <laughs> that made an ad? Um, actually, it was, it, the inspiration wasn't actually the commercials. I mean, I'm probably dating myself, but, you know, I had a very, very unique grandmother, and, you know, in many ways, she um, inspired my independence. But coming home from school, you know, she had a very regimented schedule. So she was like, you know, you come in, we play a little bit of I Declare War. Um, she'd probably bring out a board game, Sorry, Candyland, something. And then we'd move on to her stories, um, General Hospital, All My Children. <laughs> And then we watched the reruns of Carol Burnett. So it was like very regular, and then she would make dinner. Um, but in between those um, stories, which are soap operas, I was very fascinated by the commercials. And I had a very strong sense that I was not present in those commercials. Um, and so I just kept that in the back of my mind, but I was always the one who didn't get up during commercials. Like my grandmother would get up and walk around the house and do what she needed to do, but I would sit right there and watch it. So that kind of formed this idea of the power of advertising. Um, but the ad itself came from being a member of the Windsor School, which again is another educational um, opportunity I got um, because I'm a woman of color. I passed the entrance exam and we had art class. And the uh, professor um, Gao, she, you know, I, I since when I tell you the story, you'll understand why there was an apology that was issued later. We had to do you know, a, I don't know what you would call it, but it was like, she gave us an assignment to draw what we want to be in the future. And so my friends drew like, doctor, lawyer, um, scientist, and actually one of my friends in my class did discover a star. And so they did that, um, and I'm over in the corner drawing a recruitment ad for the Boston Ballet. Because a week before, I just, I went to the ballet with my friends and they were just all enamored with it and they just loved the beauty and the majesty. And if you can imagine, like a 12-year-old version of myself sitting in the aisle like this. And like, I'm just not understanding. I'm like waiting for the black ballerina to come out on the stage. And I was just, I was completely disappointed. And so I thought, I'm gonna do a protest in art class. So I'm gonna do this recruitment ad and it's gonna help get a black ballerina yeah. in the Boston Ballet. And so that did not happen. <laughs> so I created, created the ad and it sat in my art book for years. And it was on my, the front door because when you're young, if you wanna do a protest, you hang what you make on the front door of your bedroom door. Cause nobody sees it but your siblings and your mother. <laughs> and so true. it was there for like a year. <laughs> um, and nothing changed of course with the, the Boston Ballet. But um, when I got my job, 
you know, at the forays as the manager of diversity programs, my mom sent me the ad framed. And she said, I always get choked up when I tell this story. Okay. She just said that, you know, you knew what you wanted to be all along. And so I always go back to that ad because that was placed in me, you know, at, I was 11, 12. And then again, something was placed in me when I was in Head Start. So I'm just starting to see this pattern. Even though I'm drawn to journalism and I'm drawn to communications, my path, at least from those two moments, was leading me into advertising and then, you know, subsequently diversity and inclusion. Mm, wow, that's powerful. Yeah. So you started your career in advertising in Boston and then you got an opportunity to work at the four A's here in New York yep. City. Uh, managing their diversity programs and yeah. how was that role for you because that was probably one of the few diversity jobs at the time it wasn't the only diversity job because I have to give a shout out to those that you know came before me particularly at the AAF and when Heide Gardner and Connie Frazier were running the um, AAF most promising program you know I had them as blueprints and so when I got the job you know I was an account executive at Arnold in Boston and they had just lost, I think, the fleet business, which is now Bank of America. I mean, it's changed so many names. But um, I had an amazing supervisor who I could talk to about anything, and I said, you know, he said, what do you really want to do? And I was like, I want to travel. I want to help people. I want to help people get jobs. I want to be a recruiter. He's like, you should go out and try to find a job like that. Um, and I got a call from a friend who worked at the 4As who was leaving the role and said, you know, you should come and interview for this. Um, and back then, they didn't fly you to interviews, so it was a phoner. And um, I went into the break room or the, new, the wellness room. These were new things back then. Um, and I, I had a one-hour interview um, to interview to be the uh, head of diversity for the 4As, manager of diversity programs, specifically running the multicultural advertising intern program. I was 24 years old. And so I was like, Boston, New York, I was terrified. It's only a couple hours away, but it felt like a world away. And I, you know, I interviewed and I didn't even think about it, got the call to come and do the final interviews with the president of the 4As and it was on my 25th birthday. And you know, so they flew me this time into New York and I interviewed um, and I was told I got the job, you know, I could give them four years, which I said, no problem. You know, you think you have 100 years when you're 25. I was like, I got you. Um, and I went from making 24000 to 50000 so I thought I was like Oprah. <laughs> no, 50000 was like 1000 a week. Remember when you're like, huge. if I make $1,000 a week, a week I'm retiring. <laughs> then you're like, taxes? Who are you? I never met you before. Um, no, I, I got 50K. Killing the game. Killing the game. I love 50K. But the interesting story is like, um, so I was, I had a birthday party and I got up and made an announcement. And I, if, and if you know me, I do my birthday parties really big. Yeah. And I got up um, and I made an announcement and I was like, hi everyone, thank you for coming to my birthday party. I was like, I don't think I'm going to be here in September. And there was like this audible gasp because people thought like I was announcing I had a like terminal illness or something. <laughs> Power of, power of words. I was yeah. like, yeah, I just don't see my future here. And so, uh, you know, my best friend was like, can you like elaborate? And I was like, I just had this vision. This was before I had the interview. I just like, I just have this vision. I just, I don't think I'm gonna be, like be here. My mom was just all worried about me. Um, but what I was really, again, the universe was telling me, it's like, you know, my future wasn't gonna be in Boston. And so a couple of weeks later, I got that interview for the forays. And on the same day I got the job, I got an apartment with a fireplace. It's unimaginable now. What was the rent? Fifty-two thousand. No, it was. It was. No, ready? It was nine hundred and twenty-five in Fort Greene. Oh my. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that's good living. This is what I'm saying. God was on my Jesus. Um, so I said yes to both, and um, I started my career here in, in New York. Right, and it was at the 4As, which is, for those that don't know, that's the trade association of the advertising industry. Um, and they are responsible for the MATE program, yes. which is the Multicultural Advertising Internship Program, and a variety of other programs and foundations. But is that where 
you had the aha moment for creating ad color. Yeah, I mean, I you know, Mape. This who's the Mape alumni? Can I is Mape alumni? Woohoo! <laughs> Should have got here earlier. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Mape was Mape was a a focus group of you know 150 people per summer where I heard just about everything in terms of what the industry wasn't doing to make um, those interns comfortable. Um, and it was constant. Like the first year I thought maybe this is an outlier, but it kept, it was just more and more and more. And so there's where I just formulated ideas to make diversity not something that people walk away from but walk to. And I had the idea, but I wasn't in the environment to launch it. So I launched it um, at Arnold, uh, part of the offer was, I'll be the head of diversity for Arnold, but I have to launch this award show, which is pretty bold, because I was, I, you know, I didn't know if they were gonna say yes, and they said yes, that they would support it, and that's where it was launched. That's amazing, and now, uh, just for context, this is really where I met Tiffany. Oh, you have to tell the story. I was working in uh, Fort Lauderdale. Yes. Uh, I was the president of an agency uh, that was partnership with uh, Omnicom and Magic Johnson. Mm -hmm. And we had an employee that really didn't want to work anymore at the Zimmerman agency. And every day he would say, Doug, I don't know if I want to work here anymore. And every day I would say, you are late every day. I'm going to need you to be on time because you complaining to me that you don't want to work here. I'm going to need you to be on time. <laughs> he's like, I don't want to be on time because I don't want to be here. <laughs> so then I get to work one day and there's a post-it note and it said, I'm gone. <laughs> so HR pulls me aside and goes, do you know what happened to Angel? That was his name. And I said, no, I don't know what happened. I don't keep track of where Angel goes. And then a month later, I get a phone call and he's like, Doug, I landed at Arnold. And I go, okay, are you safe? <laughs> and he goes, not only am I safe, I met a woman that you have to know, Tiffany R. Warren. And that was how yeah. We met. He introduced yeah. us to uh, yeah. a rogue employee who had had enough. <laughs> was literally the person that introduced us. And then that's where I met you at Arnold Worldwide. Yes. And so many good things have come from that friendship, clearly. <laughs> so funny. Um, but one of the best things was, you know, Doug helped orchestrate the first all-star for, for ad color, which was Magic Johnson. And we broke our rule because, you know, when you accept an award, you have to show up. But it happened to be on. What day was it? It was a uh, World a, AIDS uh, Day. World AIDS Day, yeah. yeah. And he couldn't make it. He wasn't gonna. So make he it. sent in a video. He did. And when we recorded the video, we were in LA in his office, and he goes, "What's her name? I want to say her name so she knows that I appreciate this award." And I remember when we flew in with the DVD. DVD. We're, we're so old school. She's like, "Do you have the DVD?" <laughs> I'm like, it's not scratch. He's like, you will scratch it. <laughs> and then we came down and... Uh... And it played and he said, you know, and I like to thank Tiffany R. Warren. I thought I was going to fall out of my chair. Um, and that's really when, you know, I felt like, okay, we have something special. But yeah, no, that's where um, our friendship became real because of a rogue employee. Yeah, yeah, it happened. Yeah. So when you were at Arnold and you decided to start Ad Color, was the aha moment, it was just a collection of your background, but then how did you even go around the process? Because a lot of people talk about starting a side hustle or starting a non-for-profit or starting a um, board organization or just anything that they think of. But what, what was the spurring moment where you said, today is the day where I'm not going to just think about it, I'm going to be about it? Was there an aha moment? I think there was a couple. I mean, mainly because there's so many power lists and there's so many award shows that our industry holds on pedestals, and rightly so. It's, you know, they've spent hundreds of years developing a technique to honor the best work. But I wasn't seeing us being honored, or I was seeing the same people being honored. So it was like they had the few shining people of color that they would consistently honor, and I knew that there was just more people to be honored. So um, I think the aha was just, you know, being at award shows and having the hubris to think that I could start an award show with no money and no team and no sponsors. Um, and even if we had it in a conference room, I was going to start it. Um, so yeah, that, that, there were a couple of aha moments and I definitely tried it on a lot of people. I mean, there's like 15 stories of how I met with people and wrote things on napkins and 
drew the award and I knew what the award looked like before we even, I mean, I just remember one of my friend's children being born and I rushed to Boston to be by her side. Um, and clearly she just popped out a human. And I was like, I have this idea for this award show. Um, since then she's come to almost every one, but you know, I didn't really have a self-awareness if people wanted to hear the idea. Um, and when you have an idea that you just can't keep inside, I mean, you really need to pay attention to that. So, you know, there were many, many moments where probably it wasn't the right time to talk about it, but I felt so strongly about the idea and I was so in love with the name and I just, it just says what it does and it made sense. And so, you know, there were multiple aha moments for sure. Mm -hmm. And now next year, Ad Color turns 15 years old. So I, we should definitely, 15 years of one idea is an amazing accomplishment. Um, and for those that don't know in the room, Ad Color is the industry leading award show to honor creative, diverse professionals uh, in the United States of America and has raised millions of dollars. And actually right here is, uh, is the award that you talked about. So th this is actually called the Tiffy, is that true? Yes. Yeah, so other people are winning awards. Tiffany's like, I'll make one. <laughs> Teach me how to Dougie, I got no royalties. So talk to me about, talk to me about, talk to me about this award. Okay, I'm gonna put it down because okay. it's heavy. I wanna hold, I wanna like, hold it. <laughs> and how many people have won it? T tell us a little background. Well, 469 have won it to date. Um, wow. And um, I created this award, um, you know, on a piece of paper, but then I took that drawing to the award group, which is the same um, company that makes the Tonys, the Emmys, the Moon Man. And, you know, I didn't think they would want to make my, like, industry award, and they took me into the showroom, so in the shadow of all those awards, including the NAACP Image Award, I sketched this award. Um, and really, it's simply, I mean, it, it's a little bit of, you know, inspiration from the Oscars, but it's, the arms are out, and the star on the top is bigger than the star on the bottom. So this represents, you know, legends and, and people who have reached um, the pinnacle of their career. And then the smaller star represents rising stars, change agents, those that are on their way up. Um, and in a way, this represents a mentor or someone pulling up um, that rising star. So there's a lot of meaning in the award, um, and certainly the twist of the award is the twist and turns that we encounter on our way up the ladder. Um, so I wanted the award to have meaning beyond when people accepted it, that it would be in their office and it would be a constant reminder um, of their achievement. And then also a constant reminder to reach back. Now, how many uh, people have attended the award show and conference? So it's every year, once mm -hmm. a year, the Ad Color Award Show and Conference. Yep. Uh, and then over the last uh, 13 years so far, how many people have, uh, have come to? As of this year, it would be about 10,150, you know, give or take a few people. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I like this, you knew exactly how many people. Hey, listen, when you're ordering that food and beverage for an award, you'd be like, 10,150, okay? And you're gonna pass that salad over there, thanks. Um, but at, of those 10,000 people that have walked through the door, the experience has been incredible. And full disclosure, I've am one of the founding board members of yes. Ad Color, so I've been there uh, all the way from the beginning to the infamous napkin that no one can locate, but we did see it, but to where we are today uh, and all the lives that have changed. And what I think is so beautiful about it is that Ad Color not only is an award show and conference, but is essentially a leadership development program. Mm -hmm. Can you describe how you work with people in the industry, not only to award them, but then give them opportunities on different levels of boards and through volunteering to create better understanding of institutional positions and professional development? Sure, I think, you know, often people see the highlight reel and that's really the end result, but, you know, a peek inside the, you know, the tip of the iceberg is obviously the board of directors and you see that outward facing community. But what's below the surface is 120 or so people per year that volunteer their time, some working, who work at competitive companies to not only create ad color, but it's a leadership development program throughout the year. So the end goal is the award show and the conference and futures, but along the way, young professionals of color, even senior professionals, are giving back and the young professionals are developing tools for leadership. We've seen a remarkable rise in their career after they've become involved, not only with the futures program, but with um, the ad advisory board. Um, so yeah, the team ad color began with 12 people um, who were filling paper bags with magazines and 
gift certificates for a Volvo. I mean, it was just really like bare bones. And now we have, you know, um, 61 partners, including in, in terms of the partners who support us. But we also give over 2.4 million to vendors, um, MWBE um, vendors and suppliers. Because, you know, I could not create an ecosystem and not have the money be returned to multicultural vendors in a lot of cases who don't get opportunities like this. So in every step of the way, we try to be holistic and we That's try to amazing. support. That is so powerful. And you know what is also I feel is so important about this award is that half of the award to win is rising up. Yeah. And then half of it is give back. Yeah, I so mean, I think So you can't just work yeah. all day every day and yeah. like kick through people to win an award yeah. if you don't volunteer at the soup kitchen. I think, I think volunteering at the soup kitchen is amazing. I think being successful is table stakes. You know, all the awards are based on being successful. But I think in order to create a legacy and, you know, have people understand that culturally giving back is really, really simple and, and what most of us do anyway, we feel obligated to do. Um, but bringing those stories out and creating a blueprint for others to follow is really important. And I think that's why even when you go back multiple classes, you're still inspired by their stories because it's not just about accolades, it's about how they mentored or they created programs that created wealth for a community. Uh, so that's really important and I, I think that will always be part of the DNA of winning. Now, uh, in addition to founder and president at Color, you're also the SVP Chief Diversity Officer of the Omnicom Group, which is the largest ad holding company uh, in the United States. So let's talk for a minute about diversity. Sure. Um, it's popular. Yes. Everyone's talking about Everyone. it. Everyone. And what are you seeing from your lens when people say, how do you define diversity or what's the purpose of diversity? What do you tell them? What do you say? Because I'm sure people ask you the same few questions all the time, like, what do you do all day? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, the, I'm only the second in the industry. This was in 2009. Now there's, I have many more colleagues. Many of them are sitting in this um, room tonight. But when it started, I, didn't, I couldn't look this way to find a blueprint. Like, there was one chief diversity officer, um, and certainly um, was very inspiring. But generally, if you're in a new role, you look to try to like, find who's doing what. Um, so again, that was an opportunity to have a blank canvas. It was daunting. I can tell you imposter syndrome set in when I'm going from being the head of diversity for three agencies and 1,000 people um, to 1,700 with 75,000 people. And, you know, I, I, it took three weeks to, to really, like, sink in the offer. I was very honored. Um, but I was also very scared because I think they're, you know, everyone's just, like, stay comfortable. Like, just stay at Arnold. You know, there was, like, a cottage industry around me staying at Arnold. They're like, don't go. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about that is, you know, I recently sat down with, an advisor, and he told a story about when he tried to resign, um, and his boss was like, but you have a great life, that's great. And he was like, well, why do I get to have a great life and you get to have an amazing life? And so for me, this is true. Tell him, and so 52,000, so making 152. And so for me, it was um, important to be an example that even though I had fear, I went for it anyway. Um, and, and, and look, if there was failures, if there was misunderstandings, misperceptions about my role, even though, you know, in coming into the industry, trade magazines didn't have articles that celebrated um, my role. They had articles describing how I would fail. And so, you know, you come into the industry like that, and you have a little bit of imposter syndrome. I spent a full year almost being numb. I was just like, just taking it all in. And then I realized, okay, Tiff, you know, you have not only ad color that you have to grow, but you have to grow as a professional. And so I went forward, took the offer, and that was 11 years ago. And, you know, it's not an easy role. It's one that comes with a lot of scrutiny. I mean, you know, um, there are moments where you have like five or six months of just really great maintenance, and then you have that one crisis that sets you back. And you have to really use the time in between those moments to really grow and evolve as a professional. So, um, yeah, I mean, I came in fearful, and now 
my fear has turned into inspiration and resolve and peace. And I feel as though I'm positioned not only to, and this is for me, not only positioned to support Omnicom, but more importantly, I have to represent what this means, which is help the industry move forward. Not just my holding company, but the entire industry. Yeah, that's so important. Yeah. Now, one of the questions that uh, constantly comes up is, you know, what's the best way to position diversity? Is it the right thing to do? Is it good for business? Uh, what is your take on this conversation on regards to the messaging behind diversity? Those are kind of um, what dog whistles when people say it's the right thing to do. Um, it's inhumane actually to say stuff like that because what people are hearing who are marginalized is we're charity. That um, you have to like really care to help us. And I have been met in conversations with that constantly when you know preparing speeches or having conversations with people throughout the industry who are struggling to figure out how they describe diversity. Simply put, you know, when, you, when you're in a company and you have employees and fully half of them struggle to be who they are because the environment is not set up for them to succeed. So even thinking about me as a diversity officer, in certain instances, and certainly my, my, uh, my colleagues in the industry who are in this role, you are fixing a system that was created to not have you succeed so that others can succeed, but you're there to help change the system while trying to succeed yourself. So it is a mental, like, I mean, you have to literally put on, you know, spiritual armor when you wake up every day and meditate <laughs> because you know what's coming. And so, you know, I think there has to be, certainly we are open to scrutiny, but I think, you know, I, I saw this quote in a video that says, you have to get close enough to someone to walk a mile in their shoes. And I just thought that is, you know, because we often stand at this distance when we're looking at people who are different, but you have to get close to people in order to walk in their shoes. And so when you see someone, particularly in this role, no pity, but understand the, the kinds of psychological, you know, ramifications of being in a role to disrupt a system when you yourself are, you know, privy to that system on a daily basis, to microaggressions, to being silenced in meetings, um, to go into rooms where you're, you're, a, you're an, you know, an officer or you go into industry events and people are like, what's your, you know, like, you know, you, you just kind of have to take a step back and you get these thousand cuts a day and you have to wake up renewed. And so, you know, to put in perspective, again, people see the tip of the iceberg, but generally most of the time it's battling that kind of stuff. Yeah, we're seeing more conversation around uh, the diversity tax. So people of color or women feel that not only do they have to do the job every day, succeed at it, kill it, knock it out of the park, you also have to educate other people at the organization. You have to show up and create ideas and executions. You have to be available for conversations. And then also there's the assumption that people of color are less than versus greater than. Mm -hmm. Um, which is just a whole larger societal conversation. And there's also, you know, just to keep it all the way real, colorism. You know, simply put, um, I'm usually the brownest person in the room, and particularly in rooms where, you know, there's a default system if someone walks in and, and missed my introduction. Um, so you can only imagine the things that I've been asked. So I think that we, as an as a industry, have to deal with not just focusing on metrics and data, and data is important. But there's a real human cost to just talking about this in a very unfeeling way. Um, because imagine being on the other end and being one of those data points and, and how people address you and how you're talked about. So I'm always about getting back to the human part of this and being open. And if that means that I'm a Pollyanna and people are like, oh, she's too positive. And, you know, but I, I do have very um, specific and, and dark sometimes conversations about some of the things that you have to overcome to disrupt a whole system and where if, let's just say, there's millions of employees, and that's probably being very generous, but in, in advertising, marketing, and media, and you have about 500 people doing this role, imagine, you know, there's not enough soldiers for that fight. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, waking up and, and uh, stealing yourself so that you can do the work of 10 people. Yeah, and, and, you know, kind of the un, 
spoken about conversation is it's really the future of America and the future of this whole country is multiculturalism. No, 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 it's the present. It's, it's, it's right now. And I think, yeah, no, you should clap for that because I think we have conversations and we push this out in the future um, because we say um, maybe it's too hard to deal with or we're not ready for it, but essentially the present right now is multicultural. You know, I, I, I've been in rooms and I've, I've talked about things where you know, the greatest idea has come from a diverse team, um, but not, they're not, you know, giving credit because, you know, we want to go with the idea that we, we think the client will like or whatever. There's all these unspoken rules that we still hold on to in this industry, and what we're doing is we're missing out on some really wonderful ideas, but not only that, revenue. You know, as an industry, we're struggling, and so there's really no room to say no to anything at this point. Yeah, race and identity in the creative industry is historically been tough because unlike the widgets where it's just you know cost per pound or per product how do you really know where the idea comes from so ideas are constantly you know borrowed yeah. or uh, taken or used and one of the things that's always a challenge is a voice is not a vote you know a lot of times people are in meeting with a voice mm -hmm. but that voice doesn't translate into a vote mm -hmm. um, and then all these things add up to missed revenue it was a great article in the New York Times the other day um, about the young lady in Atlanta who created the TikTok dance yes. and how she very eloquently explained that you can say it doesn't matter and no one creates a dance, but you could also say creating a dance means that your algorithms improve, which means you get more followers, oh, which means you become it. an yeah. advertiser, which means you become an influencer. Yeah. But then that's never the conversation that is. Yeah, that they comes tried to, to downplay it because she's she's young, but she knew exactly, you know, whether she was media trained or prepared. But her responses, I was like, wow, she she understands the power of of that platform. But we've seen that time and time again. But I do think that what our industry struggles with is coming much like how America struggles is confronting that part of the success of many people has been at the expense of others. Um, and so the industry hasn't quite confronted that, neither has America. Um, and so we're a reflection of America. And until we decide as an industry to say, we want to confront that part of our history, you know, it, it might just be window dressing until we get really real with the conversations. I mean, certainly, you know, we can create policies and um, really great events and, and moments, but until we sit down and look at our systems within the agencies and companies and say, what are we doing that are keeping people out? And to some extent, keeping certain people in. So we, we just have to be real with those conversations. Yeah, the glass floor is something that's come up more as people that are just incubated in and they, no matter what they do, they can never fall. Yeah. You know, so they're always raised up. Yeah. So what, what is a piece of advice that you have for uh, individuals in this room right now, either those that are on the rise or those that are in the executive ranks? Do you have a piece of advice or something that you would tell everybody that they should do or could do to help in their own offices and own environments help continue the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I used to say, keep it real. You know, I was like, keeping it real university. Um, that was like my favorite phrase. But then I realized in saying that sometimes, uh, people's realness was weaponized against them. Um, and so, you know, my advice evolves over time, um, but you know, I, I want people, what I want is for people to be free, to be who they are. I get, it's just so emotional for me when I see someone who's not succeeding because a manager is, is jealous of their shine yes. and what they bring to the table. And, you know, I'm the, I'm the exit interview after the exit interview. Like, they go to HR and then I get the call and, and the realness comes out. So for me, you know, my advice would be to managers. It's you're really there to open the door and not close a window to somebody. You're really there to let that person through. You know, you'll, my, what I've learned, and this is the secret, if, if people want to call me successful, but the secret to my success is constantly letting people go before me. You know, go before me. You know, and I've been that way since I've come in the industry. Um, and mainly because I learned part of that from being an inroads intern. You know, every Saturday I would go and have seminars about how to give back. Um, and they were instilling that in us at 17 and 18 and 19. Um, and that, that followed me in college, that followed me in my career. And I never felt like if someone went before me that it took something away from me. You know, there's a scarcity mindset that if I give someone something, that takes something from me. 
And I just want to implore people that it doesn't. If my, my career is an example, it's I've grown in so much abundance. I have so many deposits in my Karmic bank account. It's because I just keep letting people through. Um, and simply put, you know, most people start legacy thinking like maybe five years before retirement or three years before, so like 62. I started legacy thinking when I was like 20, 22, you know, so that I could set my career up to help as many people as possible because I know that my time on this timeline is this, is this amount and that in order for future generations of people in this industry to have even more powerful experiences than I did, I had to start doing the work now or I had to start doing the work at 22, not 63. Um, so that would be my advice is start like really taking a look at yourself, self-awareness, um, realizing what power do you have, both relational, personal, um, what privileges do you have that you could share? Because this is the crazy thing. When you wake up, you still have that same privilege, even though you used it the day before. It's renewable. It's not like, oh, I just gave away all my privilege. I'm, I'm fresh out of privilege. It doesn't work that way. So that would be my advice to people. If anyone in this room is touched by that, I would say to just keep opening the door and letting people, people through. Mm. Now, uh, you recently, uh, on that mindset, you recently uh, started a speakers bureau uh, with the AAF and Ad Color to help more people of color and underrepresented individuals have the opportunity to speak at corporations uh, called the Apex Group. Can you talk about that? Connie is like my, my co-conspirator in life. And that's Connie Frazier from AAF. She's the first person I met in the industry at the age of uh, 22. And she's been by my side ever since. So every once, we talk to each other every morning at 10 a.m. This is a thing. And so we just come up with ideas. But the one that really stuck, I mean, it's really a credit to her, um, is uh, the Multicultural Speakers Bureau, which essentially means that there is a gap between the Washington Speakers Bureau and your personal network. So that personal network that will call you and say, oh, my friend um, needs a speaker for a panel. And then the Washington Speakers Bureau, which is a company of Omnicom, and we love it so much, has, you know, there's a high price tag, and that's wonderful, and those individuals deserve that. Um, but there's a whole missing group of people who um, can offer their expertise to uh, conferences and, and come into companies and talk about a, a myriad of topics. So right now we're taking registration for speakers. Um, you fill it out, and you provide a couple of references, um, and we're, we're hoping to get to 100 speakers by the end of the year. Um, and you know, we'll offer it up to the industry that when they're looking and building their conference platforms, um, this is where they will look. Um, and then also, even with Ad Color, once you know, we will offer up our speakers as well because we've seen that you know when they speak at Ad Color, they go on to speak at other conferences, and that that makes us smile. We love that. So that's where that idea came from, and hopefully we'll get past 100 speakers. But um, we realized there was a gap in the market. That's exciting. Yeah. And you also have a partnership with Ad Week Magazine to, uh, for the Ad Color Ad Week champions that also shine light on more people. You literally give more people opportunities than like, I don't even know. I gotta come up with an analogy, but I never seen anyone help so many people. I mean, it's really incredible. People don't help anybody and you like help everybody. <laughs> I mean, it's really incredible. So talk about the Ad Week champions. Last year I actually uh, yep. was named one uh, and that's because someone else wrote the letter. But, uh, and I do appreciate that letter being written. I did not recommend him. Uh, she didn't recommend, you know, the funny thing is, is Tiffany and I had known one another and she doesn't recommend me for anything. <laughs> Yet when I win something, everyone's like, Tiffany? Why are you always selecting Doug? And I'm like, she didn't even I'm tell not, me. But that's the, that's the most credible. I mean, we're both diversity officers, yeah. but we're so opposite. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, and actually, this moment is beautiful. We've never even sat yeah, down the first. Yeah. to really have a, a deep dive conversation yeah. on it. So it's so important. Um, how can people find you on social media? Do you reply? Do you want me to answer the question that you asked I just me? skipped over it. Yeah. Yeah. The Ad Weeks Champion List yeah. was created to, <laughs> to amplify the rise of reachback. I mean, certainly people wait a whole year for ad color and that's great, but we wanted some, some moment in the middle to recognize allies and um, young people coming up. And so the, the gist of it is to recognize the champion, but then in turn, part of them receiving the award is that they have to shine a light on uh, a mentee. Because often when you see awards, you know, you know that there's a team behind 
this person, or you know that they are mentoring somebody. So this is a way to just bring out those stories. So we did it for the first time last year. It was really successful. We are again doing it this year. Um, and we should be having an announcement soon of our champions for um, 2020. And what's beautiful about it too is the cover of the magazine will always be shot by a photographer of color. Um, and again, these are things that you ask up front um, because you want to support the whole ecosystem. So last year we had the honor of having Mark Clennon, um, who is a, a, an amazing photographer who started um, with us as the futures photographer. And he got the opportunity to, sh to shoot the cover of Adweek, his, his first cover. And he's gone on to shoot more covers. That's how you, you know, be begin to get people out there. And one thing that, you know, Bozema St. John said in a recent meeting, um, that we were at about diversity is we were being asked questions about well, what should we have at this conference and we both looked at each other like okay another conference and you know obviously I run a conference so I didn't mean it like that but the thought was that what we really need is amplification she talked about her whole world changed when she got on the cover of ad week and, and it means something when you get those opportunities and so any way that I can that's what we're going to be doing and part of that too is selecting a beacon um, which will be honored at the award show um, in September. And last year it was Eva Longoria. Um, and we're gonna be selecting another person this year. So we have a wonderful partnership with that week. It's gone back all the way to 2010 when they helped do our first special section. Um, so, you know, when I go into rooms, it's not just about, oh, let's create a list, but how can we change the whole system with the list? I'm glad you answered that question. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I am uh, actually. I was on the cover of Von Harris. He works here. There's Von up there. He was on the cover with me. His face was bigger. Hey, listen. We look at this. Well, I've never been on the cover of a magazine, so you do look at the size of the face. Um, so I do want to. Um, we are running out of time here before we head over to our after party. Um, but I do want to ask people. People in this room that uh, do not know you, that don't get in touch with you, can they get in touch with you on social? What's the best way for someone to get in touch with Tiffany R. Warren? Do you read your social feeds? Do I read my social feeds? Those that know me know that I read my social feeds. Um, diverse Star on Instagram, but it's private. Um, but, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, that's the best way, or Tiffany at adcolor.org. Okay, that sounds good. And uh, just one more fun question. Uh, talk to us just for a moment about your niece. You really want me to talk about her? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Four years ago, um, this little bright light came into the world. Her name is Amon Ra Johnson. And, you know, I was just gonna be that like Auntie Mame that would like take her to Paris when she was like 12. I had it all set out. And I was like, too busy, I'm just, I'm good. And then she came into the world and she looked at me and grabbed my finger and it was a wrap. So, um, Noodle um, is um, really the bright star of our family, but I br we bring it up to say like, at least for me, um, this work is really hard and so you have to like find something that inspires you. And, and the story that I like to tell about her is that um, we actually had the call before I came on the stage, but she calls me every day. Um, we FaceTime at around like four-ish, five-ish when she gets out of daycare and she's like, you know, really loudly. So I could be in meetings and she doesn't care. But she says, you know, auntie, where are you? And so I turn the phone around, I show her where I'm at, I explain what I'm doing. And if she sees people in the room, she says hi. And you know, the reason why I do that, and I've said this story before, is because I don't want her when she grows up to say, Auntie, where were you? And so I take the time to tell her where I'm at and what I'm doing. Um, and people, the industry have you know, hugged her and given her a warm embrace as if she's their own niece. And she always makes her debut at the end of Ad Color um, and where she tells everyone goodnight. Um, so everyone gets to see her grow up. But I'm just really honored that she chose our family to come through, um, and she's really been um, an inspiration in so many ways. And um, yeah, I love her so much. I love that. Yeah. And uh, my uh, my last question, my last question before we leave, uh, you were invited to the Academy Awards yes. this year. That's a big ticket, guys. That ain't on eBay. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so you were invited to the Academy Awards this year. 
And I just want to ask, and if you could share, oh how gosh. was it uh, attending your first Oscars award ceremony in LA? It's everything that you think it is. I wish I could be like, oh, it was nothing. Um, but no, it was, it was a really beautiful moment simply because I got to share with my mom. And, you know, uh, my friend, uh, you know, I was going to a conference and I said the dates for the conference and, he's, and he really just said it like this, super casually. He's like, just come in the day before and go to the Oscars. I was like, for reals? And he said, yeah. And I didn't hear from him for three days and I didn't want to like stalk him because um, I'm sure he was trying to work something out. Um, but I kept doubting it, and then he sent me this beautiful voicemail saying, you know, you, you, you light a path for so many people. You do so much for others. I want to do this for you. Um, he said, and please tell me what, uh, my mom's nickname is Mama Bird. He's like, please tell me what she says when she wakes up. And I wanted to wake her up at 1 a.m. And, and tell her we got tickets to the Oscars. But I just, I couldn't sleep that night, so at 7 a.m., I FaceTimed her, and she was like, T, what's wrong? Your face is weird. I'm like, Mom. I was like, we got tickets to the Oscars, and then she dropped the phone. And then she, <laughs> and then she picked it back up. She's like, T, you're kidding me. And I'm like, no, we got tickets to the Oscars. And I'm not kidding. Her dress arrived one day later. <laughs> I, mean, she, I think she hung up the phone and purchased her dress, and it came one day later, because we only had two weeks to prepare for this. Um, but the story is like growing up, you know, watching award shows used to be events. It's not so much the case now, but the American Music Awards, the Grammys, you would sit around your TV and my mom made like, the only time she would make Nestle Toll House cookies was when the award shows came on. Um, and that's when we knew we were gonna have those cookies. And so to be able to not only take her um, and have her meet celebrities, I mean, Brad Pitt walked past us with his, his Oscar while she was eating chicken pot pie, that's another story. But, we went, to the yeah, we went to the governor's ball and people treated us like queens. And you know, the interesting thing was that it's not just the, the idea of the ticket, but the fact is, is that as that little girl watching the award show, I never dreamed that my own award show would be in the Beverly Hilton ballroom three times or be in the Dolby ballroom one time, which is where the governor's ball is. So I'm here dreaming about, oh, someday I'll go to the Oscars, but you know, God had bigger dreams for me. So that's the story. That is so amazing. Making your own table is creating a seat at your table. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Give it up for Tiffany R. Warren. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's Agency Podcast of the Year. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashydayny.com.